We are in this section of Acts, Acts 24 to 26, where uh, kind of in successive chapters, Paul is facing authorities to defend himself against accusations made against him and the ministry that he'd been involved in. He finds himself before um, a Roman governor named Felix, and then he finds himself facing Felix's successor, Festus, and then he finds himself before King Agrippa. And we're going to kind of, again, take a broad look at what is happening through these three chapters. Um, But really, Luke's main point in adding these three defenses, specifically, is, I think, to communicate this point to all readers of this section of Acts. And that is, he's trying to communicate that the Christian faith is not a political revolution, rather a fulfillment of an ancient faith. The Christian faith is not a political revolution, rather a fulfillment of an ancient faith. He's juggling his testimony, his defense between Jewish authorities and Roman authorities. And he, again, makes clear, Paul makes clear that this is, this is not a political revolution. This is a fulfillment of an ancient faith. So I want to give a little bit um, of historical background. I found it really helpful to me as I studied it. But you'll notice, again, these different characters in these three chapters, the Jewish authorities, Felix, Festus, and Agrippa, how politically motivated they are in the course of this story. And Paul um, does use the political system for the sake of proclaiming the gospel here. And yet, he's not doing so in order to start his own political party or start a political movement or to start a revolution. He's no interest in challenging the Roman Empire. He has no interest in challenging the Jewish authorities for the sake of challenging um, their political power. And he has no interest in seeing Jewish people squashed. He wants to reach them with this hope, believing that Christ is the fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And he wanted to share the gospel of Jew and Gentile alike to the end of the world. So just a little bit of background on these three main um, administrators, kings that he goes before. Felix uh, was actually born a very low birth. He was born a slave, but he was freed by Antonia, who was a mother of Emperor Claudius. And somehow, out of this very poor background... Um, very few opportunities. He rose to become governor of Judea. Imagine what it took in that time for a man of low birth to be able to rise to that kind of power. And we know from history that uh, he was known for his cruelty like many rulers of that time. Insurrections at that time were on the rise and, and he used his power cruelly in order to clamp down and to maintain his power. Tacitus, the historian, described him as, quote, a master of cruelty and lust who exercised the powers of a king with the spirit of a slave. And despite his low birth, uh, he managed to marry three different women, all who could, you could genuinely say were princesses. So again, imagine the kind of power he had and persuasion he had to manage that. One of uh, his first wife was actually the granddaughter of Anthony and Cleopatra. And so again, this is pretty remarkable uh, for a man who was born a slave. And yet we we see in Acts 24 that Felix, again, is is very 
astute and shrewd in playing a political game. He really drags out, holding Paul prisoner, not wanting to really sway things too much. And he continues to bring Paul as an audience before him to share about this Christian faith, um, it really in order hoping for a bribe that he could receive from Paul, thinking that maybe Paul had some connections that would enable him to receive a significant payment. Which again is interesting. He's already reached some significant amount of power, um, again from a very low background, and yet his greed continues, and he hopes for a bribe from Paul. Now Felix, uh, his reign ends for this reason. That, again, there was um, there was a lot of insurrections at the time, and Felix decided to really uh, retaliate against, militarily against the Jews, and many Jews were killed, imprisoned and plundered of their wealth. And so there was a delegation of Jews who went to Rome to complain. And again, you have to remember in that time, so the Roman, it's the Roman Empire, right? And they're trying to maintain what they call the Pax Romana. They're trying to maintain peace in their empire. They're wanting to give some autonomy to these different areas, and yet there are Roman administrators to maintain control and power. And sometimes, obviously, they, they use their military force to maintain that peace. And so Felix went quite far and clamping down against uh, Jewish uprisings and got into trouble for it. And he probably would have been severely punished, except he had a brother, Pallas, who was able in a position to intervene for him before the Roman Emperor Nero. And this was before Nero really had it out for Christians. And we really, in historical records, don't hear about Felix again after he gets demoted from this position of governor. And again, we, we don't really know what happens to him, but we, we don't hear of him really doing much of anything else of significance. And Festus comes in to replace him as governor. And Festus is seen as a relatively inexperienced governor, and the Jewish authorities kind of know that, and they're trying to take advantage of an inexperience, and they're trying to get uh, Paul to be transferred to Jerusalem to be tried instead of in Caesarea, which is where they're at right now. And again, they, they, we already talked about it last week, but it continues to be the case in here, these chapters that really um, the Jewish authorities' goal is to ambush Paul and to have him killed. And they figured, worst case scenario, in this transfer, if they can't ambush him and kill him, then they can at least try him in Jerusalem. They don't have to continue this charade of trying to get him tried for, really, political sedition is what they're trying to get him tried for under Roman authorities. That, that Paul is trying to create an uprising, like many other Jewish leaders before him, against the Roman government. And so they're tired of trying to play that game with the Roman authorities. And if he, if he gets transferred to Jerusalem, then he can, they can just try him before the Sanhedrin for profaning the temple. Now, Paul is obviously quite aware of all of this. And he knows he's a Roman citizen. He knows he can appeal to Caesar to be tried in Rome. And at that time, you could make that kind of, not anyone can make that appeal, and not in all situations can you make that appeal, but you could make that appeal if the charges against you um, involved capital punishment, involved the death penalty. And so in both cases, both his political, supposedly, charges of political sedition against the Roman Empire involved capital punishment, and his charge, these charges of him profaning the Jewish temple also 
involved the death penalty under Jewish law. And so Festus recognizes this, and Paul recognizes this, he appeals to the emperor. And so actually it's, it's kind of a, an easy out for Festus. Again, remember Festus is governor over this territory which involves many Jewish people. He would really rather not um, have the Jewish people be against him. And so I think he's quite glad to be able to be like, oh sure, yeah, go to Rome. I don't want to have to try this case. And that's what happens. Now, King Agrippa, which we, this is in the chapter that we're going to focus on, King Agrippa is, uh, is, of, uh, is very well known in the Jewish community. He was given a territory north of Judea to rule over. And we see in chapter 26, his, Bernice is his sister. And so King Agrippa and Bernice come visit Festus. And Festus really essentially inquires of them. Fest, uh, Agrippa is known to known for his knowledge of the Jewish faith. His mother, Cypros, was, um, had a deep appreciation and knowledge of the Jewish faith. And on top of that, Claudius, the emperor, had given Agrippa uh, this title of being curator of the temple, and that of the Jewish temple. And this gave Agrippa power to depose and appoint high priests in the temple to be able to have responsibility over preserving the temple treasury and its vestments. And so Festus, again, as a new governor, says, well, let me, let me ask King Agrippa what he thinks. Since he's coming here to visit us, let me see what he thinks about this case. And we come to this text in 26 where it's really quite an interesting sight because if you read the first couple of verses, uh, the, the last verses of chapter 25, we see that this hearing is of great pomp and circumstance. It, literally, the text says, King Agrippa and Bernice come in with great pomp. And these other military tribunes and prominent men of the city are there at this hearing as well. And it's almost like they made this big show of trying, not really trying, uh, Paul before King Agrippa. I mean, Festus himself sets up this hearing to say, you know, I just want to know what to write to Rome when we send him there. There's, they're really not making a ruling, and yet Paul is having to make a defense for himself before the accusations given him. So again, that's a little bit of historical context, and I, I just found it really brought to life like all the politics that was involved um, in Paul's life as he sought to proclaim the gospel in very tense times. Um, in the Roman Empire, particularly where he was at. And so in verse um, 2 and 3 in chapter 26, we see Paul is beginning his defense of the accusations made against him. And he, he starts with a little bit of flattery with King Agrippa. You could say, well, he's just being polite. And he essentially starts with just saying, verses 4 to 7, hey, I am one of them. I'm one of these Jewish authority members who are bringing charges against them. He says he's lived according to the strictest party of our religion, and I've lived as a Pharisee. And he says, I am one of them, except I believe that Christ is the fulfillment of the promises of the Jewish faith. That's the only difference. And verse 90 continues to say, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Paul is saying, these men know me. I was one of them. I was with them. I was a big part of the persecution 
of the accusations of the murdering of Christians. And he owns that he did so with this raging fury as he persecuted these Christians. But then he goes on to share, and we've heard this in different chapters as Paul's given this defense. It's five different defenses we hear from Paul in the book of Acts. But he, he shares the story again of Jesus revealing himself to Paul on the road to Damascus, blinding him with great light and speaking to him on that road. And Jesus said, in case you don't remember, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified for faith in me. He's saying, right? That's a pretty bold declaration witness he's just made in this hearing with all these prominent men, Governor Festus, King Agrippa, military tribunes, other prominent men. He's saying, God gave me this purpose to be a witness, to bring people from darkness to light, to bring forgiveness, to make people whole and good through Christ, to be adopted as beloved child into the family of God. It's not a newfangled belief system. It is a fulfillment of the Jewish faith, what it's always been pointing to. I think that's so important. I mean, I think, I don't know exactly what was in our pastor's mind when he named this church One Ancient Hope, but that's what I see in our world today, a longing not for some newfangled belief, but a faith that is rooted in history, an ancient faith that didn't just appear yesterday, but that has existed since ancient times, that it is an anchor for us in times that are stormy and hard, times that maybe not unlike the times in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire might like to say that it was Pax Ramona, a peaceful time, but there were people under oppression. There was great tension in that empire. Paul goes on to say to King Agrippa, who he is addressing specifically, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declare first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Right? He's saying, I have been a part of this fulfilling of being witnesses from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And he's saying this again before this very prominent, powerful man of the city. And he's calling them to repentance. Now, repent and repentance are these very heavy religious words, and I think sometimes we kind of lose track that the meaning is really very simple. That what Paul is calling them to, and really Scripture is calling all people to, is simply this. It is to turn from what is wrong, to turn from what does not bring life, and turn to God. Turn to the God who is good and loving. Turn to the God who does bring life. To turn from sin. And sin, right? Sin, again, is this very loaded word, but sin is really, is that which hurts God, hurts others, hurts ourselves. It is the thing that does not bring life. Sins are the things that we end up saying. 
that's not the way it should be in this world. So to repent is to say no to sin, to say yes to God, that life is found through God. Paul is calling us to that. Scripture is calling us to that. Whether we are someone of great power or someone of low birth, the call is the same. And Paul goes on to say, this is really the reason why the Jewish authorities are against me, because I am bringing this message to say, Jew and Gentile alike are to turn to God, the fulfillment of the ancient faith that has been declared. Now Festus chimes in here in verse 24, and it's interesting what he says. He says this with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Two times he says, out of your mind. And Paul said in response, I am not out of my mind. Most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Governor Festus here represents the pragmatic politician, or just the pragmatic person, you could say. Festus thinks all of Paul's great learning and thinking and intellectualness is leading him to be impractical, lacking common sense, lacking rationality. It's like Festus is saying, all this talk of repentance and turning from darkness to light and forgiveness of sins and singing to God and to be made holy and belonging to God, he's saying, Peshaw. I love that word, by the way, Peshaw. It's a good word. We should use it more. He's saying, Peshaw, it's impractical, it's irrelevant to life. It reminds me so much of the way that I grew up in a place that just said religion, all religion, is stupid, is pointless, is irrelevant. Festus can't hear the hope of the gospel message because of his commitment to pragmatism. And this is so much of the culture that we live in today, a pragmatic culture. Pragmatism rules the day. So often now, how we do something doesn't matter as much as the result it brings. Character doesn't matter, only productivity. How we treat people isn't important as long as we get the job done as quickly as possible. We don't dialogue or persuade, we just make fun and shout down. The end justifies the means. I've been watching the last season of House of Cards since it came out recently. I have a love-hate relationship with this show. It's always intriguing and addictive, and yet the show's theme of anything goes, as long as you maintain and gain political power, really is depressing to me. And the show's theme of political pragmatism bordering on nihilism and meaninglessness just honestly sometimes makes me want to shoot myself. And it's become more depressing in our culture today because shows like House of Cards, which are dramatic, and sitcoms like Veep, which are funny, satirical, used to seem a bit ridiculous. And now it's harder to laugh because it seems, I think that might actually be the way it is. I think that's not totally true. But that, that's kind of the way things are that I can almost imagine, yeah, I think that's the way things are now. Again, I don't actually believe that, but the amount of tension and hostility that exists right now can be really a downer as we exist in our world today. But I think a question that we have to ask ourselves as we are confronted with Festus's words of Paul's message being out of his mind, how have we allowed 
pragmatism to be the greater governing force in our lives than our faith in God? How has pragmatism been the thing that we pledge loyalty to over the values that God gives us and our loyalty to Jesus? How has pragmatism infected the way we dialogue with others? Do we tell ourselves, ah, there's no point to listen or to dialogue? People don't change their minds anyway. Do we tell ourselves, as we engage in dialogue or social media, that, yeah, it's fine to use stereotypes and straw man arguments and assume the worst motives upon people as they speak their mind. We assume we know where they're coming from if they said something we don't agree with. When does this pragmatism start to subconsciously tell us that we have better use of our time than to love God and to love our neighbors? When does pragmatism start leading us away from God and from people? It's not very productive, is it? But make no mistake, the Christian faith is pragmatic and rational, and Paul says that. I speak rational words here. It's just that God and his laws have a logic and a rationality that is counter-cultural to our society and hard for us sometimes to accept. And as we wrestle with that in our own lives, how has pragmatism infected us? We have to be careful, careful to listen to the voice of Christ first, to enable us to wrestle with these issues, to, to recognize again that Jesus is the good shepherd who leads to life and freedom. But Paul ends with these words. He, con he continues, really, though. He says, for the king, he's, again, bringing it back to Agrippa, for the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in the corner. Right? All of this Christian faith, Jesus, has been done in the wide open. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? This is really quite savvy, what Agrippa says. One line, and he kind of dismisses Paul's defense, so to speak. And Paul says, though, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, again, remember all who are in this room, Hear me this day might become such as I am. And then he makes a joke. He's in chains, right? Except for these chains. He's saying, I want you to experience the freedom of faith and relationship with Christ. But of course, not these chains that bind me right now. Agrippa's response is this really sophisticated avoidance of the question that Paul is bringing to him. He subtly chastises and mocks Paul for thinking that he could persuade Agrippa with so few words in such little time. Agrippa doesn't want to commit to a decision before all of these luminaries before him. Probably would be political suicide if he did agree with Paul. But Paul's response is winsome and authentic. He indicates that he just genuinely believes that the way of Christ is the way that brings life. He's not 
really, it's not like a get in your face kind of response to Agrippa. He's just trying to say, but hear what I have to say. This is the way. And to add a joke in, I think that's pretty, pretty good. I think we all know a friend or a family who can kind of use this kind of sophisticated avoidance of the question that's been put before them. They might have really clever arguments. They might have a humorous way of sidestepping a question that you pose before them. But in the end, when we speak to friends and family who we long for them to know the hope of Christ, all we hope for is for them to genuinely consider the central tenets of the Christian faith, to genuinely consider the gospel message, to wrestle with what Christ has said. We can't argue the sophisticated avoider into the kingdom of God, but we can winsomely, authentically, genuinely say, this is what I believe to be the way that brings life. And it could be as simple as just one statement, like Paul. Okay, he said a lot that day, but in the end, he gave that one statement. This section, again, just ends with, it's interesting that Luke makes a point to say this. It ends with Agrippa saying, the man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa saying to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Again, I think that brings us back around to Luke's point in this section. Christian faith is not a political movement. It's a fulfillment of an ancient faith in God. There's so many important applications for this in our world today for us as Christians. This may be controversial. It's controversial in the Christian world. It may not be in this church. But the fact is we over-identify our Christian faith with a political party in America. With people on all sides who try to justify how Jesus is on their side, how their political party represents Christ the best. But how is this possible? Parties hold views on so many different things. Parties' views change over time. Parties do not have monolithic views that everyone in the party all agrees on. How can we say that any one party represents Jesus the best? As someone who didn't grow up in America and came later on in university, it just, I don't know, seems so obvious to me that Jesus just doesn't align with a particular party. That we have to wrestle with each and every issue and say, what does scripture say about this? What does Jesus say about this? And we will stand for what Jesus says about X, Y, or Z issue. And we look at scripture, I just can't see it in Jesus' words or Paul's words here that they care in any way for some political revolution, some political movement. I think we look at church history and we've seen so much harm done when Christian faith identifies with a particular political movement. This is not to say that as Christians, because some people say, oh, you're saying we should not be involved in politics. No. Our faith in God leads us to engage in this world 
to engage in a political process. But that's not the same thing as saying Jesus is of whatever party. And maybe we would never say that so literally, and yet we can still essentially act in that way. We are not primarily called to be witnesses for the Republicans, for the Libertarians, for the Democrats. We're called to be witnesses of Jesus and the gospel message. And when we over-identify our faith in Christ with a political movement, what we end up doing is we minimize the work that God wants to do in this world. The beauty of understanding that God is the one who is redeeming all things is that it gives us a much bigger view of the work that God wants to do in this world. A redemption that no single party is going to achieve in their vision of what making things right is in this world. The reach of Christ is cosmic. He wants to redeem all things on all levels everywhere. That is the work of God. God calls us, yes, to share the gospel in words, to save souls, as we talked about. But God calls us also into the world to do good. But we can't just choose one or the other. Activism is good. We've known people like William Wilberforce, whose faith drove him to end the slave trade. We've known people like Martin Luther King Jr., whose, whose faith and belief in God drove him to see civil rights movement start and happen. We praise God for people like that, men and women like that, whose faith has led them to seek justice and restoration and good in this world. But again, we can't mistake that for thinking that God is of one party. Neither doing good or activism or political parties will save us from the sin nature that exists in all of mankind, in all of creation. Only Jesus can do that. So often, we can be so pragmatic in the way we approach our faith, in the way we approach our, our witness in this world. So often, we have trusted political movements over trusting Jesus to save us. So often we have over-identified our faith with a particular political party or movement to the detriment of gospel witness. If we would be willing to be a witness for a particular politician or party, then would we also not, with the same energy, the same conviction, be a witness for Christ? who gives us life, who sets us free. We've all fallen short in these ways, in different levels, in different degrees, in different ways, and yet it is through Christ that we have forgiveness. It is through Christ that our tendency to turn to pragmatism or avoidance or trusting in earthly powers It is through Christ that we instead can turn to the resurrected Christ in whom we have life. That we can turn to the one 
who gives us forgiveness, the one whom we are made holy through, the one who gives us a place of belonging, the one who is the fulfillment of an ancient faith, the one who is our anchor in the storm of life. Through faith in Christ, we are forgiven. We are made righteous. We are loved. We are made one with God. We are made increasingly like Jesus. This is our hope. And no political movement can do those things for us. No political movement even tries to promise those things for us. A pragmatist might say that those things do no earthly good. Yet Christ would say it does the ultimate good and enables us to do earthly good in this world. It is our faith in Christ and the transformation we have through him and through the gospel that enables us to go out into this world and to love, to love sacrificially, to love our neighbors. It is the gospel that empowers us when we have fallen and trusted in earthly powers because Jesus is the one who has existed from all eternity and the fulfillment of an ancient faith. We trust not in earthly powers, but in the heavenly power of Jesus Christ. Let us pray.